Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about mental health issues in adopted children with Dr. David Brodzinski. I've long been a fan of his, and I have thoroughly enjoyed this interview, and I think you will too. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. There is also research showing that um, adoption can be a healing experience. In fact, it is a healing experience for, for many of the kids who come from an early adversity. Uh, when I say healing, I, I, I mean that many of the problems that they are that they are at risk for are ameliorated, at least in part, and I want to say in part, um, by being reared in, in, a, in a loving and, and, and uh, stable uh, adoptive family. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. And if you are listening to this show and you need adoption education, as is required by either your adoption agency or if you are an adoption professional who are looking for uh, social worker continuing ed credit, education for that, please note that Creating a Family has an online adoption education center. We have a hundred some odd courses that uh, are one hour downloadable interviews with leading experts in this field covering a large variety of topics, pretty much soup to nuts um, in the world of adoption. And I think you will certainly find uh, courses that would be of interest to you. You can find them on our website, going to the tab under Adoption, and uh, click on Adoption Education when you get to the Adoption Landing page. And it will take you right in. Uh, and I hope you enjoy it. hope you find it useful. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. If you are struggling with infertility, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For comprehensive resources, including infertility information, treatment options, and ways to save money, you can go to their website, faringfertility.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Nightlight Christian Adoption. Nightlight's Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program now has a magazine. It's called Pathways, Pathway to with the number two, Family. This magazine covers topics relevant to both adoption and fertility, and you can find it online at pathway2family.org. 
We also have Children's Connection, Inc. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. And we have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing waiting children from around the world. They offer home studies and post-adoption services to residents of North Carolina and New York. I'll talk uh, later about some other uh, gold sponsors, but in addition to these gold sponsors, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on our Find a Professional page on our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking about mental health issues in adopted children, and our guest will be Dr. David Brodzinski. He is Professor Emeritus of Psychology and former Director of Foster Care Counseling Project at Rutgers University, and he is author of the seminal book, Being Adopted, The Lifelong Search for Self. Dr. Brodzinski is now a clinician in private practice in Oakland, California. Welcome to Creating a Family, or I should say, actually, welcome back to Creating a Family, Dr. Brodzinski. Thank you, Don. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, we sat, we got a question that I want to begin with because I think it lays a the groundwork for what I believe is a great deal of misunderstanding and and uh, in this field of of mental health issues associated with adopted people, adopted children, and adopted adults. Uh, I won't get I don't know if she's asking me to use her name or not so I will not. She says, "My husband and I want to adopt. I've always thought this is something that we would do. I'm a person who likes to get all my facts before I start something and as I've been doing the research on adoption, it seems like all I see is that adopted kids have all sorts of problems and that these problems will last forever." Some seem like manageable, but some seem like big mental health things. I'm trying to sort out if adoption itself causes all these problems, or if something else causes them, or is this just something? In, is it, or is this just internet hype? I I think that she uh, bespeaks a question that a lot of people wonder, and I. So it's a very general question, but I want to start by asking a very general asking you. What does the research show? Is are adopted people, adopted children, just inherently troubled? Um, are uh, uh, what does and, and then we're going to break it out as to type of adoption in a minute. But if you can just kind of give us an overview of uh, this seems to be something that has been studied a great deal. There seems to be a great deal of research on this issue. So, what is the research showing? Okay. Well, you're, first of all, you're correct. There is a, a tremendous amount of research on the question of uh, whether adopted children or adults are at increased risk for a variety of adjustment difficulties. And the answer is uh, that they are, um, although most adopted children uh, are well within the normal range. As, as a group, they are at greater risk. Um, just to kind of summarize, and we can go into details later, most of the research shows that what creates the problems is not adoption per se, but what happens before adoption, either uh, being born to parents who have some genetic-based uh, uh, 
you know, a mental health issue, whether it be depression, schizophrenia, substance abuse, uh, exposure to prenatal complications such as exposure to substance abuse or prenatal malnutrition, or, and also what happens to them after they're born but before they're placed for adoption. Uh, problems of, uh, of neglect, of abuse, of multiple foster placements, of life in the orphanage, and, and so forth. And these are the factors that are more likely to create the, the more serious and long-term problems, although certainly adoption itself does color the person's sense of who they are. It, you know, it, uh, it uh, influences family relationships and how adoption is handled in, in the family uh, with the child will, will play a role uh, in terms of their adjustment as well. But the, the key issue here is that uh, although the risk is there, uh, most of the problems have to do with what happens before a child is adopted. There was an article uh, recently in uh, Atlantic Magazine, and it was talking about uh, the, the adoptive parents uh, are, uh, as a whole, researchers indicated, uh, more involved, uh, um, better off financially, uh, and uh, more involved uh, parents, and involvement being measured on eating together, uh, uh, involvement in children's activities at school, et cetera. And yet they noted that uh, children, uh, adopted kids, seem to struggle more and have more problems. And they attributed it uh, to the fact, of, uh, which um, I think they almost exclusively that the factor that they mentioned were was attachment issues. And I thought it was an unusual, this was, and I was looking very quickly then, I believe the article was in 2015, although I'm not sure. And this is a major publication, obviously. And they attributed it to attachment issues, and that seemed an unusual thing to uh, alone uh, to attribute uh, uh, children struggling, and they were talking about children struggling in school as well as with behavioral issues. Um, and that seemed, and they were they were citing research that was supporting the fact of attachment issues, without having broken down whether or not they were talking about domestic infant or, or children who were adopted at, a, at an older age, either through foster care or through internationally. Uh, is, is children who are adopted, let's, let's talk about that. How much is attachment an issue for adoption? And, and let's, this one I think we'd have to break out between a domestic infant and, and then uh, children who are adopted at an older age. Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. Um, it's a big issue particularly for children coming from uh, the child welfare system and children coming from abroad who uh, and you know uh, the vast vast majority of children being adopted today come from child welfare they are not the uh, newborn babies adopted privately or through agencies uh, they are uh, children who are beyond the infancy years or at least you know in the in the late infancy years if not older when they are placed uh, and that includes children coming from abroad and uh, attachment issues are of of, of uh, importance here and they do uh, or I should say they can color uh, the the way in which issues are handled in the family and, and certainly impact the child's adjustment so i, I wouldn't I, I didn't read the article i would not um uh, conclude from my knowledge of, of the broad literature that attachment per se is the primary factor in children's adjustment. It, it's certainly one of the factors that I think is commonly experienced by families. Yeah, um, that was kind of my my take too. That that that's perhaps one of many. Um, and we did receive a question asking about 
uh, domestic infant adoption and how common attachment issues are in domestic infant adoption. And it is from Rob. Uh, thoughts on that? Now, this is exclusively, he, he is asking exclusively for uh, children adopted domestically from usually birth mother placement. Usually, there, there's, it's not much of a problem compared to um, the other types of adoptions. And, you know, my, my students and I, when I was at Rutgers back in the mid-'80s, did the first study on mother-infant attachment and adoptive families comparing to non-adoptive families. And we, we did focus on very early-placed children. We didn't find any differences in the quality of the attachment uh, from adoptive families to non-adoptive families. And that's been replicated a couple of times. Um, however... Um, there, there could well be a, an increased risk for you know a certain percentage of adopted children, uh, more so than uh, non-adopted children who are being placed as babies. Oftentimes, these are high-stress pregnancies. These are pregnancies that are not planned. Oftentimes. Uh, and not wanted in the sense of you know wanting to have a child at this particular time, and we know that prenatal stress can complicate children's adjustment uh, in utero and, and and subsequently as well. So, um, you know, children placed as babies are not free of certain uh, pre-birth uh, risks uh, compared to non-adopted children. But most of the research doesn't show that it manifests itself in a uh, particularly high level of attachment difficulties. Uh, my experience as a clinician, as a researcher, indicates that uh, you know that most of these kids are doing quite well, and certainly compared to kids coming out of the foster system or kids who are placed from abroad uh, with regard to uh, uh, attachment insecurity, they're not doing it. They're not having as much attachment insecurity. Okay, that's uh, yeah. That that seems to make sense. Some of the other um, things that you have mentioned are prenatal exposures, uh, what do we know from children who have been exposed to alcohol or drugs or uh, in utero? How does that affect mental health issues or the mental health of the children both and children and then as they subsequently age to be teens and adults? Sure. Well, we, we certainly know that exposure to toxic substances prenatally, including alcohol and drugs, can alter brain uh, development, both in terms of structure and functioning, and that becomes the pathway by which uh, later problems uh, emerge. So we have children who are placed as, uh, even as babies who have been prenatally exposed to drugs and alcohol, who have an increased risk for uh, ADHD type of symptoms, uh, attachment uh, problems, and so forth. There is a positive or an upside, though, too, and that is that there is also research showing that um, Adoption can be a healing experience. In fact, it is a healing experience for, for many of the kids who come from an early adversity. Uh, when I say healing, I, I, I mean that many of the problems that they are that they are at risk for are ameliorated, at least in part, and I want to say in part, um, by being reared in, in, a, in a loving and, and, and uh, stable uh, adoptive family so that... Um, you know, the kids coming out of foster care, for example, who have had a lot of adversity, neglect, and abuse, you know, they, they may have difficulties as they enter into the families, and they may have some difficulties as they continue, but the kinds of difficulties that ordinarily we would associate with, you know, global deprivation and abuse often are ameliorated to a great extent, including attachment problems, again, uh, to, some, to, to some extent, not necessarily totally. Uh, 
but uh, I think that's the other side of adoption, although there's a risk for mental health problems associated with adoption. Adoption as a, as a societal response to children in need is, is uh, proven to be a very successful one uh, because it is a healing environment for kids. And uh, we know that children coming from foster care or from uh, orphanages abroad uh, in international adoption have likely experienced neglect or abuse, which is worse, not that we would choose for any child to experience either, but uh, we certainly know if that parents feel like, oh, if my child is, was, we, there's little evidence that my child has been abused, uh, then, then my child will fare better. Is that true? Is there, is, has, is there a distinction between abuse and neglect and how it plays out in affecting mental health? Well, it is, you know, and, and I wouldn't want to say one is less serious than the other. We do find different patterns of adjustment for children who are neglected uh, versus those who are abused at, at times, particularly in terms of attachment. But uh, certainly um, it has to do more with the extent of abuse, the extent of, of neglect. Um, you know, children who are raised in orphanages typically are not abused in the usual sense of the word of, of being uh, verbally or physically uh, assaulted. Uh, but there's often global deprivation in the sense of, of, of a lack of adequate stimulation, uh, usually not lack of nutrition, by the way, uh, except in very, very poor orphanages. Uh, but um, uh, there, there's, there's global deprivation in terms of stimulation, but there's also, more importantly, uh, deprivation of, of um, uh, social stimulation and the consistency of, a, of one or maybe a most two caregivers who, who, are, who children learn are, are kind of the go-to person, uh, the person who they can count on to be there for them. And that, that kind of deprivation uh, it can be quite serious for children's uh, attachment security if, if the child is cared for by multiple people and, 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 uh, and not given the kind of individualized nurturing that is the hallmark of, of promoting secure attachment. Often children adopted from, again, internationally or foster care, I guess almost inherently most of them, will have disruption of care, of caregivers. Um, they would have, uh, at least in foster care, many of them will start out with their birth family, then that, that caregiving relationship will be severed or uh, changed, even if, if contact has continued. And then some of them will have experienced multiple uh, foster homes, and, and again, each time with a change in caregiver. And children internationally, as you pointed out, might have inconsistent care uh, in that caregivers come and go, turnover, or um, just uh, a few caregivers and many children, so not consistent care. And the care, again, turnover of the caregivers. Or moving amongst orphanages or houses in orphanages are still at that prevalence of uh, in many in many countries of baby homes sure. and moving into uh, young children homes and then moving so there's a constant change in caregiver. What type of impact does change in caregiving have on children? Well, it teaches the children one important rule that you can't trust that the people who you count on will be there, you know, and so you can't count on them. It, it undermines a fundamental sense of, of trust in caregivers, um, and it and it it um, prevents the child from developing, uh, you know, a, what we commonly call a psychological parent or a person who the child has internalized as being reliably and available and, and available in a way that, that can meet a child's uh, basic 
uh, both physiological and emotional needs. Um, it is, it can be, it's devastating for kids, you know, and, and we know children go into foster care because of some circumstance in the biological family that, that placed the child at risk. Um, and we tend to think of the system as, as a place to protect kids. But, you know, un, unfortunately, and I don't mean this, that they do it purposely, but child welfare frequently uh, moves children from home to home. Sometimes it's out of their hands. A foster parent no longer wants to be a foster parent or uh, or something else happens. And, and every time the child is moved, whether it's to a new foster home or from the you know from the birth family to the foster home back to the birth family back to a foster home and so forth every move requires uh is is a change requiring adaptation and every move reinforces for the child the sense that that uh you know that the people in their lives cannot be trusted to be there in a in a continuous and nurturing way and what type of long-term impacts do you see in in that lack of trust, that lack of a psychological parent, or that lack of a trust in someone, one person that they can rely on? Well, you know, we're talking now about really the role of attachment in the life of the person, and you know, uh, both, uh, you know, whether it, it extends from neglect or abuse or multiple caregivers. You know, what we find is that these are children who are at risk for. Um, you know, insecure attachments and at times, you know, more pathological, what we call the uh, disorganized attachments. Attachment is extraordinarily important, you know, both in terms, particularly in the early years of life, in terms of creating a foundation for healthy brain development. And when the child is it does not experience reasonable security, um, you know, the uh, children's adjustment, can, you know, uh, is going to be compromised in part because brain development is compromised, and it can it, it can impact virtually all areas of a child's life, uh, from uh, the ability to learn, the ability to manage impulse control, social relationships, the ability to enter into a relationship in a trusting way, the capacity for empathy, uh, and and you know, so forth and so on. So, you know, uh, we don't want to. You know, say that attachment is the be-all and end-all of development, uh, but but certainly when children are are exposed to multiple caregivers early in their life and it compromises uh, uh, their the development of secure attachment, it lays the foundation for uh, increased chances of, of other developmental areas uh, going awry in some way or another. You are listening to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We have two of them, one for adoption and one for infertility. You can choose which one or both you want to sign up for. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption as well as the upcoming week's blog topic and show topics so that you can submit your questions. Uh, we uh, would love to have you sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can find it on the top right side of any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. I wanted to talk a little about genetics. You mentioned that. Um, the I, We had a guest on the show, and I don't remember now, it's been a number of years ago, who was saying one of the things that, that we have to acknowledge is that not always, but often, uh, when uh, people who, if across all levels of adoption, be it domestic infant or foster or international, there can be a genetic component to uh, instability or, or, or perhaps impulse control issues that the people who 
say, for instance, are going to get pregnant um, uh, without uh, having an unplanned pregnancy, although that does happen to plenty of people who are are quite thoughtful and and have no impulse control issues, uh, that there might be a predominance uh, that that would happen more often to people uh, who have ADHD or other impulse control, so that, that there's a genetic predisposition just inherently in the adopted population if you look at it as a whole, not in specifics. Um, thoughts on that? Uh, I'd like to get your input on that. Well, let me start off by by, by saying that that genetics plays a huge role in in who we are as people. Period. For, let's forget about the distinction between adopted and non adopted uh, individuals. Uh, so we are a product of our genetics. The question is, what role does genetics play in the increased risk for adopted individuals? And there are a couple of ways of thinking about this. And, you know, you've mentioned one uh, that probably is more often associated, well, I don't know more often, but sometimes it's associated with um, uh, infant-placed children, you know, parents who have uh, found themselves pregnant uh, early and uh, and not planful and so forth. And there's some uh, been sex speculation, I wouldn't say strong research, but some research supports that suggests that, that individuals who find themselves in that circumstances more often um, than uh, in the non-adopted population are themselves characterized by uh, impulse control problems or judgment problems sometimes associated with learning challenges, with ADHD, and so forth. If that's the case, then what they are doing is passing along whatever predisposition that they have for these kinds of problems. But what is more obvious around uh, genetics and adoption, you know, it can be seen in the child welfare um, uh, adoptions. You know, children are removed from their parents for a reason. Um, they're not just removed willy-nilly. And the reasons often have to do with problems in the birth parents that have a clear genetic basis. Substance abuse addictions, if you will, are, gene- are in part genetically determined. Uh, other kinds of uh, psychopathology, whether depression uh, or some kind of significant uh, personality disorder or schizophrenia, also have a genetic component. Uh, and, and so the and, and these are individuals who have problems at a higher rate than the general population. That's the reason why they often end up not uh, parenting in a, in a healthy manner and their kids are removed. Well, then that means that their, their children who are in foster care are at, are at significant risk or significantly higher risk for genetic-based problems, you know, that range the gamut from, you know, uh, you know potential for uh, greater potential for addictive behavior, impulse control problems, conduct disorders, uh, and other forms of uh, affective disorders. So, yeah, genetics plays a role in this that, that we, uh, you know, we cannot uh, ignore. Yeah, I, and and, uh, and internationally, how does it play out? Because children come into care for, depending on the country, and it does vary by country, um, uh-huh. but uh, children... Uh, in many countries, come into care for different reasons. They're coming into Absolutely. care often because of poverty, disease, uh, and some. And with some countries, it would be similar to our foster care. But other countries, it's not. Has there been research that would indicate that children uh, adopted internationally would would look different from children adopted from the foster care system, even though they would have, from a genetic standpoint? I guess I'm asking. Well, I don't know from a genetic standpoint, but the kids coming from uh, the foster care do show higher rates of, of, of developmental problems than kids who are adopted internationally on, on average. 
and and you've pointed out something that's important to keep in mind, and that is that uh, international adoption does vary by by country in terms of the reasons why kids are not with their birth family, uh, and uh, and we do find that in some countries there is a relatively high um, rate of uh, substance abuse in the population, um, and, and whereas in others there's a relatively low rate of substance mm-hmm. abuse in the population, where where alcoholism and, and, and drug problems play a role in why children are, are removed or taken uh, taken from their uh, families, uh, such as in Eastern Europe and in Russia and so forth, uh, genetics may play a, a greater role in some of the outcomes where kids are removed or kids are placed in orphanages, uh, you know, uh, because of, of poverty or other kinds of, of uh, cultural issues uh, that might have to do with uh, stigma associated with out-of-wedlock pregnancy and so forth, uh, there may not be as much uh, of an issue. Uh, there may be less of an issue around genetic-based problems for those kids. Well, and, and we also then would have to acknowledge that, that the face of international adoption is changing as well. Children are Absolutely. older when they're coming. And also the the population of children that are ending up in care, even in countries in the past that we would have would have thought it was always associated with um, China, for instance, um, the preference for boys. And so girls were ending up in care, but all, that's changing as well. So uh, the, it's a it's a constantly shifting <laughs> uh, 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 mosaic there of, of of international adoption and, and shifting by year and as well as by country. Yeah, um, yeah, and I just want to re- I want to reinforce one thing that you said, and that is um, that what we are seeing now is that more and more countries are. Um, uh, allowing adoption uh, primarily for those kids who already have significant developmental problems, and, and, and uh, some countries actually uh, uh, have made that as policy. Uh, and, and so what that means is that the children who are being adopted from abroad um, probably are a different type of population today than they were uh, 15 or 20 years ago when, uh, when well, certainly 10 years ago when uh, international adoption kind of peaked in 2004-2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, for those of us who care about research, that skews the research results, too, because much of the research uh, it was conducted on children and, and probably is currently being conducted on children who were a different population. Uh, so we have to kind of uh, caution when we, when we talk about research that it only goes oh, so far. And we have to caution about, you know, uh, when we talk about international adoption, sometimes the researchers are pulling from a specific region or even from a specific country. I have colleagues, for example, who are looking at international adoption within specific countries, for example, China, uh, you know, versus a a broader array. And so we find a different uh, pattern of adjustment. Oftentimes the the, uh, children, I should say really the girls (laughs) from China who typically studied are generally doing fairly well. Uh, academically and, and in many other areas, uh, and, you know, compared to you know, when you look at international adoption across many different countries, when you mix the populations together. Well, you've actually introduced something I was going to come to later, but let's go ahead and talk about it now. I uh, I do want to uh, hear what the research was showing for uh, types of adoption. Well, I tell you what, we're going to. I'll go. I'll, I'll go back. I'm going to revert back to my original plan, and we'll, but I do want to come back to this. 
So what I want to do now is let's talk about what the research is showing um, for the common mental health issues faced by adopted kids. And then I'm going to break it out by type of adoption and even to the extent that, that you know, and, and you're right, there are certain countries where a, a significant amount of research is going on and others not so much, usually connected with how many children are coming from that country but uh, so that they have a population for, uh, for studying. But, okay, just in general, what, what is the research showing for common mental health issues or behavioral issues faced by both children and adolescents and adults if the researchers continue to follow into sure. adulthood? The most common problems identified first are learning challenges um, and uh, ADHD. And ADHD is not a learning challenge per se, uh, but although it's often correlated with learning challenges. Uh, so those are two of the most common, as well as what we call externalizing symptoms, uh, symptoms that are more acting out behavior, oppositional behavior, conduct problems. Um, you know, when we break it down into uh, specific kind of symptoms, you know, parents will talk about children who are stealing or lying or breaking rules and so forth. Uh, we, we also have, uh, depending upon the population, increased incidence of, of attachment-related problems. Um, um, but those are the kids who generally are placed a little bit later, not so much the, the baby adoptions. Although, again, I, I would say that, um, you, know, um, you know, there, there may be a little bit uh, more risk for those kids, too, because of uh, prenatal complications. Um, it, again, when you start to get into types of adoptions, you know, like child welfare adoptions, you get into higher levels of depression and anxiety problems and so forth. Uh, uh, but um, for, for baby adoptions, it, it's mostly um, uh, learning challenges, ADHD, and, and externalizing symptoms. And for uh, child welfare adoptions, um, you know, again, we can add uh, the same kind of problems, in, 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 by the way, international adoptions too, but we also are going to include uh, a significantly higher level of attachment difficulties. And that continues. That continues uh, into the adolescent years, um, and we find, uh, you know, research now um, uh, that have looked at uh, adopted adults, and uh, you know, you know, there's an increased risk for a variety of problems even into adulthood. All right. Now, let's. We've talked about. Um let me, let me just sum up what you've said to make sure I'm, I'm getting it. Okay. So, the most common would be. Uh, across the, for all adopted kids would be learning challenges, learning disabilities, uh, learning uh, issues, uh, and ADHD. And I was thankful that you separated those because, in fact, I agree with you that ADHD is not really doesn't necessarily, although it's often uh, comorbid with uh, uh, learning challenges. And then externalized symptoms, which is what we would probably typically call behavioral problems, uh, acting out, breaking rules, things like that. And then exactly. the, that would be pretty much those three would be across all types of adoption. Uh, yep. And we had talked earlier as to the reasons why we might have seen those. Those were the reasons we talked about with prenatal exposures, neglect, abuse, genetics, stressful pregnancy, changing caregivers, things like that. Then in addition to that, if we're talking about child welfare, children being adopted from foster care or being fostered uh, through foster care, we would, we would ex add in uh, depression, anxiety, uh, as well as attachment difficulties. And sure. I would assume that would hold true 
with international, but with international, as you pointed out, there has been some research that's uh, broken, uh, that's been done specific to individual countries. So to the extent that we know that, let's take some of the bigger countries, and you mentioned China, so let's say to start with China. What's the research showing um, for the, used to be just girls, but now it's girls and boys, although um, really, what, about four or five years ago, it shifted to a special needs only program, yeah. more or less. Yeah. Uh, although many of the special needs are more physically based special needs, and some of them correctable special needs. So, what's the research That's showing true. on how the kiddos from China are doing as they now are getting older? You know, I, I, I don't know, as, and I'm going to acknowledge, I don't know as much the the, the, the newer research that it's incorporated boys as uh, is in addition, except for those that are focusing on more health related issues and so forth. But but the the bulk of the research on on the girls being adopted show that most of them are doing pretty well academically, uh, not too much difference, if any, uh, factor uh, than non-adopted kids. In fact, there's a couple of studies which are showing that compared to com- community-based peers, here some of the kids are are, are showing um, the better uh, school adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, depending upon a lot of this has to do with the age too, because although you know children can can be doing fairly well in school, if not within the normal range, sometimes more complex uh, language processing problems uh, uh, are, are seen for kids placed at a little bit older age, you know, from the, you know, preschool years on up, um, in part because of, of now, you know, they've already developed the language structure and so forth, and now they have to learn a new one. Um, so, what you know, about mental uh, health issues associated with because these um, girls now many of them are reaching young adulthood? Yeah, okay. I don't find as much. Uh, my my understanding of uh, the literature, and again, this is not my research. I, I haven't done this research, uh, you know, specific to individual countries. But um, people like uh, Tony Chan, uh, who does a lot of work on uh, uh, children who have been adopted from China, you know, doesn't find. Uh, you know, a high level of externalizing symptoms. There are some executive functioning problems at times, but uh, uh, not, not a high level of uh, externalizing problems. Did, you, did I hear you say that um, more anxiety than the average or not? I, um, mean, I mean, it's misheard you. In some studies, not all. Okay. So for the most part, these kids are not, they are not exhibiting um, uh, uh, increased risk of mental health issues. Am, am, am I paraphrasing that correctly? Not correct? generally. Now we're talking, of course, about uh, research that um, incorporated um, lots of kids who were being placed out under the you know, one-child policy, and these are often right. younger children and um, and often uh, free of, of a known uh, developmental disabilities, whereas yeah. now uh, there is a greater percentage of the kids who are being placed from China with known developmental disabilities and health issues. What do you know of Korea, another uh, long-term uh, fairly stable It's an program. interesting uh, population because Korea, some of the kids come from orphanages, but some of the kids were in foster uh, homes there. And Many we do know that the mm-hmm. I'm sorry? Yeah, most. Actually, children who are placed, the, the majority, in fact, the vast majority, they may start off for a very young, small period of time in a institutional group home, but most of the children yep. who are going to be placed for international adoption um, are in foster families. And they're relatively stable placements, too. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, um, you're and, right. And that really benefits kids. I mean, there's been some research which have differentiated Korean kids who, who've grown up mostly in a foster home versus kids who've spent longer periods of time in institutions. And what we find is what we would expect, and that is that a home environment, uh, a stable home environment is better than an institutional environment. Um, yes, the kids from Korea, uh, on average, are, are doing reasonably well. Uh, they, they, you know, there are increased risks at times, but it, that has to do, I think, more with what the, the pre-adoption environment was like, and that, of course, is true for anywhere and so forth. But you know, um, uh, you know, the, 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 on average, it's a country that, you know, where the kids are, are being placed who, who look a little bit healthier than the average uh, internationally adopted child. The only thing I would add to that is that I think we are seeing a greater, excuse me, a greater prevalence of alcohol exposure um, to children coming now. So I I can't help but think that the um, that we will also start seeing some of the problems caused by alcohol exposure. Um, yeah. I don't know that. I mean, I'll take your word for that. I haven't read about that myself. But if, in fact, these are children who are exposed to at a higher level than in the past to alcohol, uh, then you're right. Then we would we would expect them down the line to show uh, some of the same difficulties as other kids who've been exposed early on. And another country that used to place a lot of kids is not currently placing children, uh, to, at least to the United States, is Russia or any of the, well, it's just Russia or some of the former Soviet Union, countries of the yeah. Soviet Union, which would include um, some of the satellite, you know, the, the Poland and the, uh, Kazakhstan and some of the other yeah. stans and things like that. So let's talk about what, and there has been some research exclusively on these children. Yeah, and uh, again, these are kids who are who are at increased risk. There's there's a, a higher incidence of uh, uh, alcohol and uh, some substance abuse in general in the uh, birth families of these kids. The institutional environments are, are often not very good uh, in many cases, uh, although you know, in some they're reasonable. You know, reasonable by orphanage standards, not by you know. Uh, traditional caregiving standards, but these are kids who are at increased risk. You know, a lot of learning challenges, a lot of ADHD, externalizing challenges, uh, attachment-related problems, and so forth. Okay. Uh, what about I mean, the, uh, best what exa- the best example, probably, of, of of how quality of the orphanage or care, you know, care uh, on uh, children or the damaging care, of course, comes out of uh, Romania. Uh, you know, with oh, the Chesky yeah. regime and so forth, and these were children who were exposed to, you know, some of the worst conditions uh, that we, you know, that we can consider. And and yep. uh, these are children who have been shown to be at substantial risk. Although, the interesting thing is that there was, a, you know, the research. It's mostly by uh, folks um, in England. Uh, as well, there's another group here too is studying them. You know, there's a wide range of variability. You know, in their in the adjustment of these kids. So some kids, you know, the majority showing um, some areas of developmental deviation, and some significantly so. But other kids who, for whatever reason, um, have avoided the more serious problems, whether it's because of internal resilience or. Uh, or because they were able to find someone within the home who took an interest in them. And and there are examples of this where you, even in very poor environments, a child might come to the attention of, of, of one of the 
nursery uh, uh, people, uh, you know, caregiver and so forth, who spends more time with the child. And this is somewhat the luck of the draw, so to speak. Oh, these kids, yeah, I mean, just where the crib up, is placed, you know, where the child's crib is placed. And, and also just the child's personality. Some children are more absolutely. Uh, extroverted. And whether the child is a, a physically attractive child. Right. We, know, uh-huh. we know research that the pretty babies, if you will, uh, you know, get more attention and more uh People talk to them more. They interact with them more than than babies who have, are on some scale less attractive, so to speak. Yeah, no. And, you know, Charles Nelson has been on the show a number of times, and he yep. has done some of the, uh, out of Harvard, done some of the... Uh, yeah, the Bucharest uh, study. Yeah, the Bucharest study here in the United States. And, and that's ongoing, I will add, or at least I believe it was last time he was on. And it's it's... Absolutely fascinating. Well, as we keep continue our school. His study was really interesting because they did something that had not been done before, and that is they uh, took some of these children and and placed them in foster care rather than allowing them to stay in the orphanage. And and what they found is that the, you know, uh, the foster care experience, uh, this goes back to what we're talking about with Korea, the foster care experience um, is a much healthier environment for these kids, uh, uh, preventing some of the more serious problems from emerging, uh, uh, even though they, they're coming from so, roughly similar uh, birth family backgrounds. Yeah, it is it's really a, it's such a well-designed, it's such an interesting, um, it's an interesting study. Um, as we continue our world tour, and we will stop now, I'm trying to think of any other countries, well, that, that probably would have exclusive research on them. Guatemala comes to mind simply because of the numbers of children that were placed, again, a country that is no longer being placed, they're placing children. Yeah, I, I honestly don't remember, uh, I, can't, I can't off the top of my head, uh, talk too much about these studies that focus strictly on on Guatemala. I wish I could, but I can't. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, I can't either. I was sitting here trying to, I don't even know that there has been. I'm sure there has been, just because. I I believe there has. I think uh, Victor Grosje has done uh, some work down there, and uh, uh, my sense is that that those children are, are on average, maybe a little bit healthier um, than uh, than the kids, um, from some of the other countries, you know, most of them are placed fairly young. Yeah, uh, I don't well, know if that's very young. Well, they are not. I, I think the the, the it's uh, closed now, but yeah, no, the kiddos were coming it's quite young. for a while. In fact, yeah. one of the youngest when it was when it was operating, it was uh, when it was open. It was the children were some of the youngest anywhere. So you're yeah, yeah from that standpoint, and many of them in foster care as well. Although the quality of foster care, I think, uh, varied significantly, but. Uh, uh, Again, placed very young and in foster care, so that would argue, as you point out, towards for less mental health and and learning yeah. issues. Let me. The other, the other country I know a little bit about is Colombia. That a while oh, yeah, ago, I was ask about that. it was one of the more active programs. It still goes on, but less so now. And those are kids who also experienced a, uh, um, uh, you know a reasonable amount of group care uh, down there. I actually do. I consult with the Colombian authorities on their adoption program, and uh, oh. you know they are struggling to, to try to eliminate the institutions as a. You know, as the de facto caregiving environment, and, and the kids come out of Columbia often have learning challenges and uh, uh, and uh, ADHD kinds of symptoms uh, because of it. It's actually a fairly a stable program now uh, for, and a number of agencies have it. Although most of the children are. Oh, I, I, I should know off the top of my head. We have, let me, for um, 
the people who are listening, let me mention that uh, Creating a Family has country comparison charts for the top placing countries to the United States. Uh, and I think 17 some odd countries, and we analyze them for 25 factors. Uh, um, and you can find that on our site, creatingafamily.org. Click on adoption, and then click on country charts. Uh, and it will tell you the age of the child, the health, of the general health of the kids coming over, that type of thing. So I should know off the top of my head, but <clears throat> excuse me, I know that it is not young children that are coming over, not babies or toddlers. So you would have some of the issues associated. Yeah. Uh, it would seem to me, probably, I'm guessing, uh, similar to children in foster care. Would that is that your understanding as well? That is true. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let me break for a moment and to remind you that you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility, and today we're talking about mental health issues and adopted children. We uh, have the Creating a Family has the largest adoption networks on the communities, on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. Clout now ranks us as the number one online influencer worldwide in the area of adoption. There are three ways to connect with us. On Facebook, you can join our Facebook support group. It's a very active group and a very supportive group. You can find that by facebook.com slash groups slash creating a family. You could also like our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash creating a family. Or you can connect with me personally. I'm dawn.davenport1. Uh, the easiest way to find us on Facebook is just to type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box. You can like the page and join the group. We also hang out on Twitter and Pinterest, and we go by at creating a family there. So we've talked about various mental health and, and learning risks associated with adoption. How big of a risk is it? Uh, is it possible to say to, to to quantify it? Some we know that we're editing that children are at increased risk, but how much of an increased risk? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it, it, and again, um, it would be um, you can't talk about adopted children and, and their risk because adopted children are such a varied uh, group of individuals. You have to talk about children who experience certain kinds of pre-placement um, uh, adversities, per se. Although, let me let me go back and, and, and uh, children in general, about 15% of children in the in the U.S. Um, are likely to have a diagnosable mental health condition or learning challenge, you know, in their ch growing up years, maybe even a touch higher than that. Uh, the best guesstimates for um, guesstimates in the sense that we're pulling from lots of different uh, data for uh, baby adoptions, in other words, infant, children placed as, as infants, is, you know, is somewhere uh, probably around uh, double that amount. Uh, so, you know, somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of, of baby adoptions will probably have some type of uh, learning challenge, ADHD problem, or some other kind of diagnosable condition. Um, so you can look at that as two ways. You know, it's anywhere from one and a half to two times what we would expect, given the representation of the population. Or we can look at the at the uh, three quarter full glass. At, you know, seventy five. You know, seventy to seventy five percent of the kids are within the normal range. And I think we have to keep both perspectives in mind. Otherwise, we end up stigmatizing adopted children and the whole process of adoption. 
So that's one way to look at it. When you tend to look at kids in foster care, you know, uh, who've ex- experienced um, uh, you know, trauma, abuse, and so forth, then, then the percentage increases uh, much, a much higher percentage. And, and there you get into, you know, you have to start to talk about uh, specific experiences. And, and frankly, um, I'm not an expert in, in uh, the, uh, the, uh, the in being able to put the percentage of kids who've, who've been uh, physically or sexually abused who are likely uh, to have uh, some type of developmental problem. But, you know, the risk then increases uh, more so than uh, we would expect for kids just placed as babies who haven't experienced these difficulties. Would it be fair to say that the increase would then be significant uh, for uh, either learning challenges, ADHD, or a some type of mental health issue oh, for sure. children absolutely. for foster care? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, uh, at least... Well, there's certainly more so. I mean, uh, kids who, the percentage of kids who are in foster care who have significant mental health problems is at least uh, somewhere between 40 and 60% of kids. So, you know, that's a pretty high percentage of kids who have diagnosable problems. Um, and that may be conservative. Some studies find as much as, you know, 70, 75% of the kids and others, you know, a little bit less. But then you also have to ask yourself, you know, uh, how, why were they placed in foster care? What were the circumstances? Uh, what did they experience? Some kids go into foster care uh, because uh, you know parents you know simply don't have the resources to parent them. They haven't abused them. Uh, there's a certain level of uh, perhaps neglect, but but not not global deprivation of the kids. And yet they're in foster care, and the parents cannot you know, rehabilitate themselves adequately, and the kids remain and and then get placed for adoption. Um, these are kids who are going to show a lower level of uh, adjustment difficulties. Well, you had given the you said forty to sixty, or maybe even higher. So maybe we could say fifty to seventy-five percent of the kids would have a diagnosable mental health issue. But what about if we add in learning challenges and ADHD? Does that change yeah. that percentage? No, I, I'm including that in there. Is that okay. in that group? You know, um, so you know. It, it, the problem is that you can't rely upon any one study. Some studies, depending upon you know the kind of sample that they're looking at, will have uh, statistics that are very high. Others, you know, only moderate. You know, so the question is, you know, how representative a sample has the researcher drawn from? Uh, there are studies that have looked at. You know, national samples, representative samples. You know, and uh, you know the kids are at significant risk. And, you know, but even there, it, it varies from one study to another. But certainly, I would say, as a conservative figure, you know, 50% of the kids in foster care probably have a diagnosable problem. Okay, uh, and. Uh let me read this question that we received from Brenda. She said, I've often wondered if the problems we hear about for kids in adoption are really problems that the parents didn't get the type of kid they thought they were going to get and so are not the best parents for that kid. This can cause problems. Um, she brings up kind of the issue of, well, certainly adoptive parents, uh, the, the role of adoptive parents in externalized behaviors, uh, and perhaps even diagnosed uh, mental health issues. Um, and it's kind of the whole goodness of fit uh, that yeah. parents uh, 
um, who are, let's say, introverted and they get a highly extroverted child or vice versa, or or parents who uh, underestimated the issues the child might have uh, and uh, were not prepared for the time and, and the work that it would, ca- would take. Uh, I'm not sure that exactly what her question is, but do you have any thoughts on that, that the role yeah, yeah. of adoptive parents play in, in mental health of adoptive people? Absolutely, and I'm, I'm really glad you raised that because um, realistic expectations are extremely important in the adjustment of the adoptive family. It's, it's frankly, it's, it's important in all families. We, we, you know, let's just step back for a second because I don't want to necessarily lay all of this on adoptive families. But when parents have uh, have a child born into their family, and you know they. Prior to the birth, they have all kinds of expectations, mm-hmm. you know, and hopes for the child and for themselves as parents and so forth. And when they experience what we call violated expectations, when the characteristics of the child or their experience as parents differ from what they hoped for or expected, it creates adjustment difficulties. Now, let's fast track to adoptive families. Um, we know that unmet expectations and violated expectations uh, are one of the uh, strongest predictors of adoption disruption. Um, and what I mean by that is that when children are placed, uh, you know, parents hope for, they they want certain kinds of children, they, you know, even if they know that they're adopting a child who's had some adverse experiences and perhaps even has some diagnosable problems, you know, they very often go into it believing, well, you know, what this child really needs is love. The child has never been adequately loved, never been given stability. Perhaps the parent has parented before. You know, they, they've been successful at it. And they go into it perhaps in a naive way, not understanding the, the extent of challenge that, that will occur in integrating this child into the family. What this raises is the critical importance of, of, of uh, pre-adoption preparation and education as well as post-adoption support. It is critical for fa- for families uh, for for agencies to be completely transparent about what the child has experienced. But it's more just as important as as telling the, the family, well, this is a child who's been exposed to uh, to drugs uh, prenatally. Uh, this is a child who's been exposed to domestic violence, you know, postnatally or inadequately cared for in X, Y, or Z ways and so forth, the agencies have to explain what does this mean from the perspective of parenting challenges? What does it mean to adopt a child who's been sexually abused? It's not enough to know that, oh, this child has been sexually abused. Parents have to understand how that will impact the family environment, that the child may at least initially begin to sexualize the environment, may begin to try to to touch the parents or other kids in ways that are unacceptable. Um, And not only do they have to know what is like, what could occur, but how can they help this child to develop uh, in ways that that are healing for the child and that uh, create safety for everyone else. So, Historically, um, families often were not given all the information, and then there was a time when the information was given, but but frankly, uh, even the caseworkers were not adequately prepared or trained to share what it means to uh, 
to uh, to raise a child who's experienced orphanage life or raise a child who's been physically or sexually abused. You know, I think the agency is doing a little bit better in that area, although I still do a lot of training of the professionals, and they're still, in my view, not adequately prepared. The real key issue right now, in addition to that, though, is the, uh, the uh, availability of post-adoption supports, because very often agencies don't know... Um, exactly what the child has experienced or can't know and can predict exactly how a child will integrate into a family so that once the child is there, families begin to recognize that there are they have needs that are not being adequately addressed. Who do I go to? And that raises the question of, of post-adoption supports. And it's probably one of the most important unmet areas uh, we have right, right now um, in the field. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> Um, you are, you are preaching to the choir, and you know it's a. Uh, I'd love to pick your brain. What can we do? What can we, as the National Adoption Education and Support uh, nonprofit, do to do a better job of meeting the needs of families post adoption? Agencies uh, need to be there as well. Although we we do find that families sometimes are not turning to their agencies, and and quite frankly, sometimes the agencies are are not providing or are, wouldn't be there for the families even if the families did. There are other agencies that would absolutely be there to provide as much support uh, and education as they could, but the families are not turning to them. What are the ways we can reach these families before they give up? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I, I, I think uh, most agencies, most adoption agencies, are not set up to provide post-adoption services. That's not their role. Okay, so, you know, in some sense, we can't fault them for that, although some agencies do do that. They have a post-adoption program. Um, What we need to be doing, first and foremost, is, well, what we need to be doing is ensuring that those agencies and those private practitioners who are available in the communities, who families do turn to, have better training as it relates to adoption. Most uh, fa- people who go through Ph.D. programs, MFT programs, LCSW programs, or I should say uh, uh, so- social work programs, who, are, who become licensed marriage and family therapists, social workers, and psychologists do not get training in their graduate programs in these areas. They get sometimes a little bit of training here and there, uh, but the, the complexity of the issues facing families simply are, you know, is, is not something that most mental health people um, know about. In fact, there's research showing that, you know, that adoptive parents are often very dissatisfied with the uh, mental health services that they, that they uh, encounter. Now, there are a bunch of programs around the country, postgraduate programs for mental health people that are developing, have developed, um, yeah. you know, uh, adoption competence programs. Right. Uh, there is a federal project going on right now uh, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, the Center for Adoption uh, Support and Education is, is the lead uh, the lead on this for developing online um, mm-hmm. uh, training for mental health professionals, trying to standardize it in some ways. So you know, there are efforts being made. 
We've done a recent, let me interrupt you very briefly, just to tell our audience, we have did a show with uh, Debbie Riley uh, in this past spring on finding adoption competent therapists, and we talked a great deal about programs, if, if, there are, if people in our audience are um, social workers or mental health professionals who are seeking that, that's a great show to go back and listen to. And uh, also, we have resources for helping families who are looking for an adoption competent therapist find them. All right, so yes, I would agree with that. I was going to say one other thing, though. I wanted to say one other thing about that, and that really um, is during the preparation process. Uh, For whatever reason, families sometimes are reluctant to seek help uh, to acknowledge, certainly to the agency that placed the child with them, that they're having problems. you know, they they view having problems perhaps as having failed uh, to meet the expectations of the agency. They've failed in terms of meeting their own expectations. And I think what we need, we need to do a better job in, in emphasizing that, in fact, um, help seeking is a family strength. It's not a a sign of failure. It's a sign of of good parenting when you know that you need help. To, to reach out and to ask for it. And uh, I, I think that message is just slowly getting across, but perhaps not sufficiently. That's a great message that, that perhaps we can, those of us who are trying to prepare families ahead of time, can stress before the child even enters the home that uh, plan on, on adjustment problems, plan on things not going as you anticipate, and, and help-seeking, I like that term, help-seeking is, 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 is a sign of strength. It's, it's a strength. sign that you are doing things right if you uh, reach out to us and uh, tell us that things are not going well. Uh, that's an, I think you know, you another... said something, and I want to just re- reinforce it. When I work with families in the pre-adoption stage, and I often am asked by an agency to counsel a family or whatever, you know, I, I predict problems. I, I, I don't say if they occur. I say they will occur because parenting, period, is challenging. And even biological parents you know, experience, you know, difficulties at times. They ask, you know, the parents ask their own parents. They ask friends. They sometimes go to mental health people. You're adopting a child who's experiencing more adversity on average than uh, most parents have. You will, you will have challenges. And so when you have challenges, these are the things that, that you need to be doing. So it's not about if, it's, it's, it's when. That's such a good point. Uh and, and if people go in accepting that they're going to, they are more likely than one would hope to reach out for help at that point. Post-adoption, let's say parents are home, they've got their child, they're running into problems in addition to reaching out to their agency uh, and, not, and, and the re- realizing that they won't be judged and they will be, hopefully they will be helped, although, as you point out, there are a lot of agencies that don't have programs to help them and they find a stone wall there. So in addition to that, well, that's necessarily Stonewall. I mean, I think the first place to go to, if they don't know any other place to go, is back to the agency. But to ask, you know, who, you know, who in the community can you refer me to? Agencies, if they don't provide it, I think have an ethical obligation to know what the resources are in their community uh, that can help families to manage the difficulties that are going to be commonly seen. So uh, it's a first place to go to, as well as adopt the parent groups going on. Online, uh, you know, uh, 
families often find, in fact, I find that some of the best resources for these families are other adoptive families. And, uh, yeah. You know, they they can normalize what the family is experiencing, um, and you know they can often be good role models. You know, in saying, look, we went through it too. This is what we did. You know, can we say that we we uh, have have re- totally resolved? No, but we're on the other side of of the issue now, and and are and are, are making significant progress. And if and you follow this path, like- you're likely to as well. Exactly. No, nothing like somebody who has gone through it to give you hope that you can go through it uh, and make it Absolutely. to the other side. Um, what about the? Certainly, uh, in-person groups are wonderful, but they are very difficult to find. And and quite frankly, they're often families are are time stressed as well. And if and if you live outside of a major metropolitan area, they're very difficult to come by. What has been your experience with online peer-to-peer group, support groups? Well, they can be helpful, but I find a, a wide range of of, um, of opinions, you know, in these chat rooms and so forth, and it's hard for adoptive parents to know who to listen to, you know, and, and what and what advice makes sense and what advice does not. You know, you get sometimes people who are quite catastrophic in their thinking in some of these groups, and uh, others who. Um, you know, you know, just to give an example, I mean, although adoption, I'm sorry, we talked about attachment issues as being common, um, you know, a lot of the groups see attachment um, issues, uh, you know, at the blink of an eye when, you know, exactly. some of the symptoms that, that, there's, that the child are manifesting could be a variety of other kinds of problems. And so uh, certainly um, I parent groups, online chat rooms, and so forth, or a place to to go to if you f- can't find any other resources. Uh, and they can be, a, even if you can, they may be a, a, a resource to, you know, to see what other people are thinking about. But then, you know, some thoughtful use of, of, of the information, I think, is warranted because sometimes we, we find people at both extremes, either minimizing uh, the issues and, and basically, uh, you know, promoting adoption as the be-all and end-all for children without necessarily mm-hmm. um, sharing that, that it can be a challenging experience for parents. And then on the other hand, um, you know, uh, catastrophizing uh, the issues uh, that the kids are experiencing. There is a huge amount of variation in online support. Moderated groups, in my opinion, are essential um, for many of the reasons you just mentioned. And and, and 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 honestly, I suspect that all the things you've just mentioned are also the case in, in person support. I think that's the it's a fundamental problem with peer to peer. And I liked how you said it: thoughtful. Um, uh, 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 you have to go into it thoughtful use. You you can't turn over. Yeah. You can't check your brain at the uh, at the computer screen. You've got Correct. to um, you know, use your, your your brain. Use and be aware that uh, some people are um, and in catastrophizing is certainly we do see that. Um, but uh, yeah. You know, this has been wonderful. I, I thank you so very much for uh, talking with us today uh, about the subjects because this is such an important subject uh, for for families. And uh, and I really appreciate the uh, your level-headed approach. Uh, and not speaking of non-catastrophizing, being uh, honest and thoughtful, but not catastrophizing nor minimizing the mental health issues that we uh, can see and might see in our adopted children. Uh, 
Let me take a moment now to thank a few more of our sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support of these gold sponsors that we are able to bring you this show, as well as all the resources, including our online support group that we were just mentioning uh, a moment ago. We have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. We have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience. They have three adoption programs, Private Infant, International, and Adoption Through Foster Care. We have Holt International. They have been in existence since 1956, and they are a global leader in finding families for children who need them and also providing the pre- and post-adoption support they need to thrive and Adoption Connection, a California-based adoption agency working with families throughout the U.S. They were a national pioneer in open adoption and are respected for ethical practices, compassion, and openness to adoptive and birth families. For those of you listening to our show, if you want to take a moment and give us a ranking on iTunes, we would really appreciate it. We are the number one ranked show uh, on the topics of adoption, and we would like to to stay there. And uh, iTunes uses your ratings. It is quick, it is easy, and we would really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Brodzinski, if people want more information, uh, is there a website that they could reach you or reach more information about your research or your writings? Well, the best way is not so much my website, although I can give you, it's FMH Consultants for Family Mental Health Consultants. FMH Consultants is my website. My wife and I are psychologists. That's our website. But they can get a hold of me uh, directly. at uh, dbrodzinsk at comcast.net. That's uh, my first initial, my name, without the Y at the end, at comcast.net. Of course, and I will say that he will not be able to answer everyone's questions personally, so do keep that in mind, uh, that when you email him, he he may or may 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 not be able to respond to everybody, uh, but that uh, is a, a good source for getting information. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see everyone next week. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.